I'm going to read to you Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. That's the section we're going to be studying tonight. Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. The angel says to, to Daniel, and it says, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up, up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and, he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, sorry, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Now that's as far as we're going to get tonight, and there's a lot to cover. Let me just give you a little heads up for those of you that have followed along in our ministry and have been a part of previous Bible studies. I usually bomb you with a lot of scripture, and you're going to have some scripture at the beginning of this study. Tonight, you're going to have a lot less scripture and a lot more history. Because what you're going to see is that these prophecies that have been given to Daniel many years before they came to fulfillment, 
are so specific and so literal. And when we then go back and look at the history and how they were fulfilled literally to exactly what Daniel was told, by the end of the night, you're probably going to be going, wow, how could anybody know that? And I can't wait to show it to you. But in order to teach it in this manner, I'm going to have to go in a different direction than I normally do and not give you as much scripture, but a lot of history. So that's why you have on your uh, table there a uh, little piece of paper. That is going to be very, very helpful for you. And for those of you that are on Facebook, um, Becky's going to put it in the comment section later on, hopefully, if she's able to. And uh, um, if, if she's going to either give me the thumbs up or the thumbs down that it made it. This will be a very, very helpful tool for you in our study tonight. So, like I said, we're going to take the next few weeks and the rest of our study to break down and unpack the vision for Israel and the land of Israel given to Daniel in chapters 11 and 12. Now, as you're going to see, the detailed prophecies in this chapter and the next number over 100 prophecies. There are over 100 detailed prophecies in chapter 11 and chapter 12. All right, and they can be matched exactly with the people and the events that have happened already in world history in the years right after Daniel's vision. Now, the exactness and the accuracy of these prophecies being fulfilled has caused many scholars to say that Daniel was written later on by someone other than Daniel because no human being could predict the future this accurately, as you're hopefully going to see tonight. But remember, Daniel is not the one writing this by himself. He's actually recording the visions that he had been given by God's messengers and the angels. He also, as, as you hopefully remember and know from Bible, uh, God's Holy Spirit, God has in, used his Holy Spirit to invite, inspire prophets to write the exact birthplace of the Messiah before it happened. Remember Micah 5, 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem, which it literally happened. We also know that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey in Zechariah 9, 9, as it was literally fulfilled uh, also, go with me to Psalm 22 and look at what God had the Holy Spirit cause David to write in Psalm 22. Look at verses 14 through 18. Again, many years before this actually happened, David writes this in Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18. He, David writes, I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Now we're on this side of history. It's obvious to us who that was referring to. It was Jesus, and it was fulfilled literally by Jesus when he died on the cross. And folks, what I want you to understand is there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament and many in the New that are, are, have been fulfilled, but there's others that are going to be fulfilled. But the ones that we know have been fulfilled have been fulfilled so literally, you have to believe that the ones that are still to come are not symbolic, but literal, and take them that way. That will help you understand what is still to come. Unfortunately, many Christians today will look at prophecy and say, well, that just symbolizes. No, if it doesn't tell you it's symbolic, take it literally. If you remember back in our study of Ezekiel, we, we saw that um, Zechariah was told uh, that he was going to be taken captive, the, the last king of, uh, of uh, Israel, and he was going to be taken captive. 
but he was told that he's going to be taken captive to Babylon, but he'd never see it. And if you remember what happened to him, right as they captured him, they put his sons to death right in front of him, and then they put out his eyes. So that was the last thing he saw, and he was taken in captivity into Babylon. The prophecy said, you'll be taken into captivity and finish your years in Babylon, but you'll never see it. Literally fulfilled. Folks, let me tell you, that by the end of tonight, I hope you have come to a deeper understanding and appreciation of the fact that when God says this is going to happen in the future, it is going to happen. Again, I don't want to beat this horse too much, but all through the book of Revelation, four times it says this, these things must take place. Stop thinking Revelation is symbolic. It's actually going to happen. These things must take place. And that same word must is the same one you see in John chapter 3 where Jesus says you must be born again. Does must mean must in that? Yes, it does. Acts chapter 4, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Same word in the same way. If four times in the book of Revelation God says these things must take place, they're going to happen. And I can't wait to show you that God knows all, sees it all, and he lays it out in great detail. Now, before we go there, i got to give you some scripture. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse 20. 2 Peter 1 verse 20. The scripture says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy actually tells us that every word of this book is what? God breathed. And folks, as you're going to see, with a hundred prophecies just in chapter 11 and chapter 12, every one of them, up to the ones that are yet to be fulfilled, and I'll show you that delineation next week. Every one of them have been literally fulfilled. And as far as we get tonight into verse 20 of chapter 11, we can actually show you how these were literally fulfilled. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So let's start unpacking what God has for us tonight. Look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. The angel that's been speaking, and some, some Bible scholars wish that there wasn't a chapter 11 number there and that this was continued into chapter 10 because he's just talked about how Michael had come to help him and how he still had to go fight against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Hang on for a second. We've seen angels strengthen believers, but Darius the Mede, he's not a Jew. He's a Mede from the Medes and the Persians. But the angel actually was working on his behalf. By the way, you want to know why? Because he was pro-Israel. As you're going to see, because he was pro-Israel, the angel was working on his behalf to strengthen him. Boy, let me just tell you, you want our country to survive? Pray that we're pro-Israel. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God said, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And there is a spiritual war going on that we looked at last week. And if you want help from God and his angels, pray that our leadership is pro-Israel because there will be strengthening on behalf of those who are pro-Israel. Now, now, Darius, though, the Mede, is not Cyrus, the king of Persia. These are two different individuals who are actually ruling at the same time. If you remember from our study earlier, Cyrus became the king of Persia after the Babylonians, but he appointed Darius 
to be in charge over the region of Babylon and the Chaldeans. Go to Daniel chapter 9 and look at verses 1 and 2 to kind of refresh you on that. It says, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was making, uh, made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So here we see that in the first year of Darius's reign, Daniel was reading Jeremiah and he did the math of how the fact of the 70 years of captivity in Babylon were about to come to a close. But again, remember, he had been made king over the Chaldeans, over Babylon. Who's the king of Persia? Is it Darius? No, it's Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia, but he put Darius in charge over Babylon and the Chaldeans. But we see here in Daniel 11, verse 1, that this is the third year of, uh, of Darius, which, by the way, would coincide with the third year of Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus became in power and almost immediately put Darius in charge with him. So this third year of Cyrus, it coincides with Darius's third year as well. Now, Daniel 6 and Daniel 9 happened in Darius's first year. We just showed you Daniel 9 when Daniel has the, the vision from angel Gabriel come and talk to him about the 77s that we've already studied. That happens in Darius's first year. Oh, and by the way, does anybody remember what happened to Daniel 6? Go back to your Sunday school lessons as a kid. Daniel in the lion's den. We, because it jumps around in our story, we don't realize it. But actually, if you go back and look at Daniel 6, that happens during the first year of Darius's reign there in Babylon. Darius is the one who comes and checks on him in the, in the, in the pit and says, did you make it through the night? You know, he was pro-Daniel. He had been tricked into signing that law. Oh, by the way, what was going on in the spiritual realm that caused these men to want Daniel put to death? Remember? There's a spiritual battle going on between the forces of evil and the forces of good. And so in Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. In other words, the angel says to Daniel, In the first year of Darius, when you were going into the pit with the lions, and you were also getting this vision from Gabriel, I was actually working to strengthen the king who was over you at that time. Even though there was all this bad stuff happening, the angels were working because Darius was pro-Israel. Now, chapters 10, 11, and 12, the vision of this angel, they're all happening now in the third year of Darius, which is also the third year of Cyrus. All right? Now, go to Ezra chapter 1 real quick and look at verses 1 and 2. Ezra chapter 1, look at verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Okay, what year is this in Cyrus's reign? In the first year. Remember how in Daniel 11, 1? The angel said, I was sent to strengthen Darius during the first year. At the same time, it's obvious because of what's going on here. Who moved Cyrus to allow the Jews to go home from captivity and to rebuild their temple? God did. 
Cyrus was the one who made the decree, but who moved him to do it? We just read it. God did. Again, Cyrus, pro-Israel. Darius, pro-Israel. And the angels came and the Lord came and strengthened him to do what God had in mind for them to do. Again, please keep in mind, the real battle is not going on in the physical realm. The real battle is going on in the spiritual realm. And we need to pray that we would have men and women who are in leadership in our country to be for, for Israel. Because otherwise, judgment and curses are going to continue on our nation. Now, and look at verse 2 in chapter 11. It says, now I'm going to show you the truth. Remember, he was told that at the end of our last study is going to be revealed what had been written in the book of truth. Remember, this is not the Bible, but actually a book of the things that were yet to happen. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia after Cyrus, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, if you look at your little piece of paper here, look at the bottom, and you're going to see the persons who would rule. And, all right, you got the, the date 539 to 465 B.C. There's Cyrus, and then Darius is in parentheses because he's co-reigning over Babylon in the time of Cyrus. After Cyrus came Cambyses, then Pseudo-Smyrnus, and then Darius I, and then who? All right, Xerxes. All right, now... There's going to be three more, Cambus, Pseudosmyrnus, and then Darius I. And then after them is going to come a fourth, according to the prophecy, who's going to be far richer than all of them. And this one is going to be, the fourth one is going to actually start to go after Greece and to attack the country and the, and the, the, the people of Greece. By the way, this Xerxes... You've seen him before in the Bible if you read the book of Esther. Go to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. Look at verses 1 and 2. In Esther chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, it says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, and then it goes on in the story of Esther. You say, well, where's Xerxes? You just read it. Xerxes is another name for Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. I have a hard time even saying it myself. So, but this is who, that's Xerxes. All right. So the prophecy that Daniel's given is, after Cyrus, is going to be three more kings in Persia. And we've got them listed there. And then there's going to be a fourth who's going to be far richer than them. And he's going to stir up. A battle against the people and the king of Greece. Now, history will show, if you're really into history, that actually Persia had eight more kings after Xerxes before Alexander the Great came and conquered them. But the reason why the prophecy doesn't list them is because it actually is dealing with the fact that it's Xerxes who causes the problem that is going to cause Greece to come in and take over the land. Do you remember from our study of chapter 8 why the prophecy was told that Alexander the Great would come with great rage against Babylon and take him and wipe him out? It had to do with his father, who he first of all remembered that Xerxes many years prior had come and attacked Greece, and he didn't like that. And then 
One of those eight kings that aren't listed here in our prophecy is named Darius III. He actually helps fund the assassination of Alexander the Great's dad. That caused Alexander the Great to come and totally wipe them all out and to begin his ruling and reigning. So listen closely. The prophecy here said there's going to be four more kings, and the fourth one is going to be really wealthy, and he's going to come against Greece and attack it. There were eight more kings, but they're really non-consequential for the prophecy. This is more dealing with that's what started Greece wanting to come and do something to them. And during that further eight kings, more happened. And by the time of Alexander the Great, when he comes on the scene, he's remembered what Xerxes did. And he is after them because of what Darius III did, who's not listed here. And he becomes in power. And by the way, verse 3, look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity or to his children, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Anybody here want to take a while and guess who this is talking about? Alexander the Great. We've already seen that in our study of chapter 8. Remember, Alexander the Great came on the scene, quickly was able to amass a large kingdom. He actually was conquering people so fast that we said earlier in our study that there came a point when he was trying to go into India, his army said, we're exhausted. Could you give us a break? And he went back and he lived a, because of all the years of war and the, the wounds that he had experienced. And he also had to deal with malaria. And he also had a big problem of eating too much and drinking too much. He died early. And by the way, did his offspring become king after him? No, it was divided to who? Four generals. We've already looked at that and listed them, and we're going to look at some more of them tonight. Just like the prophecy said, this guy's going to come because why did they jump to Alexander the Great? Well, it's tied to Xerxes, who started the mess with Greece. Because of that, Greece came later on and attacked them. But his power went to his four generals, and they didn't rule with any kind of the power that he had, and the prophecy said so. Now, Here's what I want you to see. In Daniel chapter 11, verses 5 through 20, we're going to try to go through this as fast yet as slow as I can so that I don't lose you. We're going to try to break down sections of this verse by verse or verses by verses. And we're going to start to see what it says and then what the history has shown. All right. Daniel 11, 5 through 20 deals with only two of the four branches of the kingdoms of Greece. This is because the eastern and the western branches don't really affect Israel or the land. Remember, Daniel's being told about what's going to happen to the people of Israel and their land during the 490 years of the 490-year prophecy. So even though Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided into four kingdoms, the eastern branch didn't have anything to do with Israel. The western branch didn't have anything to do with Israel, but the northern and the southern kingdoms did. So the guys that took care of Eastern and Western are Lysimachus and Cassander, those two generals. Um, but again, they're not in play here and they're not mentioned. But the king of the south is Ptolemy I and his descendants, as you're going to see. And the king of the north is Seleucus and his descendants. Again, look at your little piece of paper. By the way, did it make it in the comments section? I apologize for those in the Facebook. It didn't, it didn't make it. I was hoping it would. My wife's trying to type it, but... She's got a frowny face on, so we'll just see what happens. But if you look at your paper, the king of the, kings of the south 
The first one of the generals that was of one of uh, the four generals of Alexander the Great is Ptolemy the first, and you have his years there. And the first one uh, that was of one of his four generals of the king of the north is going to be Seleucus the first, and you have his years. All right, we're going to be tracking now along with what's going on in the upper section. Now, Ptolemy one. He's the general that went and had power where? South. Very good. And it's Egypt. Very good. Heard someone say Egypt? That's excellent. He's, one, he's the king of the south now. Ptolemy I is now the, he founded a powerful dynasty in Egypt, while Seleucus, who is the king of the north, would make a stronger one in Syria. But at this time, Syria is being controlled by another nation. So the king of the south, Ptolemy, and the king of the north, Seleucus, joined together in forces to help Seleucus conquer Syria and also at the same time the area that a lot of people call Palestine or the land of Israel, which is between Syria and Egypt. Okay, So the two generals partnered together to help Seleucus get power in Syria. Oh, and in doing so, the northern kingdom has control over the land of Israel. But Ptolemy number one broke his uh, broke with Seleucus and he took Palestine, or the land of Israel, making it a part of the Egyptian empire. So now, at first, the, the land of Israel is under whose control? North or south? North. But then not long after that, the king of the south decides, I want Israel, and he takes it, and he makes it a part of the southern kingdom. Now, this starts wars between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, with Israel in between as a pawn, and as you're going to see in our study tonight, they're going to be going back and forth, back and forth, being tossed back and forth and fought over. And they're going to get kind of tired of it after a while. Now look at verse 6. Then the king, sorry, and after some years, they shall make an alliance. And, and, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. All right, so here's what the prophecy says. After some years, perhaps in an attempt to ease tensions between the two empires, the, the king who's in charge at that time at the south, which is now Ptolemy II, he takes his daughter, Berenice, and he marries her to Antiochus Theos. You see on your piece of paper, you got Ptolemy II, Antiochus Theos now, the third one that's in power after Seleucus and Antiochus I and the Antiochus Theos, Ptolemy II will come and take his daughter Berenice and marry her to the king of the north in hopes of making an alliance and a treaty. And a lot of times that would happen. Nations would actually, kings would have their daughter marry someone from the other side so they would all wouldn't fight each other as much. Now in order to do this though, Antiochus Theos, who's the king of the north at this time, he divorces his wife, which is also his half-sister, Laodice. This didn't accomplish what either had hoped, and when Ptolemy II died, Antiochus Theos takes back his former wife, Laodice. By the way, when she returned, she wasn't a happy camper, and she killed her husband, Antiochus Theos, and he, she killed Berenice, and she killed the son that Antiochus and Berenice had made. Are you with me? Still tracking? A woman scorned, all right? So now Laod Laod Laodice's son, Seleucus Callinicus, 
would now rule Syria or the northern kingdom. And you see him listed now after Antiochus Theos. How did Antiochus Theos die? How did he die? His wife, Laodice, that he had divorced to marry Berenice, the daughter of the king of the south. When, she, when he takes her back, he wishes he hadn't done it. Let's go back and read verse 6 again and listen to how it tells all this. After some years, they're going to make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, her name's Berenice, she'll come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. They're all put to death. Go to verse 7 now. Look at verses 7 through 9. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. For some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now the context of verse 6 is Berenice. All right. So now verse 7 says, A branch from her roots shall arise in her husband's place. Um, the branch from her roots, sorry, not from her husband, from her father's place. A branch from her roots is Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III. He's the next one that's going to come on the scene. And so remember, all this mess happened when Ptolemy II died. Well, Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, is now coming. And he's angry about his sister's assassination. And he attacks Syria and Seleucus, Calicanus, can't even say it, Calinicus. And he takes away much spoil, just like the prophecy said he would. Later on, Seleucus Callinicus tries an attack on Egypt, but it doesn't accomplish much. Exactly everything that verses 7 through 9 that said would happen. And you see there in verse 9, the latter shall come in. This is Callinicus again to the realm of the king of the south, but he has to return to his own land. Look at verse 10. Callinicus's sons, well, I'm sorry, let me read verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming, and overflow, and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Now, Calcanus' sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, aren't you glad we got this piece of paper? All right. Seleucus, the, and I apologize for the other online. We'll do our best to get it to you somehow. And the, the, uh, and the sons, Calcanus' sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, would eventually have the military success that their father never could. And when Seleucus III died in battle, his brother Antiochus III took over Syria, and he became one of the most powerful kings of the north. Antiochus III actually stays in power for quite a while. You can see how long his rule was. He actually stayed in power for a while. That's why he's called here Antiochus III, or the Great. All right? Now, in three military campaigns against the Ptolemies of Egypt, he took city, after city in Israel, and during the reign of Ptolemy IV, which is Philippator here, the kingdom of Syria came all the way down to the borders of the kingdom of the south. And Israel was now given, again, under Syrian control. So if you notice how Israel was first conquered and given to the northern kingdom, Syria, and then not long after that, the guy broke his treaty, and he gathered and got control of Israel. And now they're going back into power under the Syrian authority, which is now Antiochus the Great. 
Let's go back and look again at verse 10 and how it said all of that. His sons, Callinicus' sons, shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming. How many times did they come? I just read it to you. Three times. Remember, they made three, three wages of war against the Ptolemies of Egypt. Which shall, keep, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So they came down, and their border now, including Israel, comes all the way down to the top of the border of the southern kingdom, which is Egypt. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Now, Ptolemy IV, in, 2000, in 217 B.C., staged a major battle against Antiochus III with 70,000 soldiers in each army. And actually, if you want to do the study, you can read about this. There were dozens of battle elephants and everything. Surprisingly, the king of the south defeated the armies of the north. By the way, why is that surprising? Remember, he's Antiochus the Great. He was the one that was the powerful king. But surprisingly, the king of the south actually, he wins this battle and, and defeats the armies of the north with Antiochus III barely escaping with his life. Antiochus III asks for peace and Ptolemy IV grants it. So in other words, this great victory that he had over the king of the north really didn't do him any good because he let his enemy go and they have peace. Now look at verse 13. Oh, by the way, Israel and their land is now back under the control of the kingdom of the south. You notice how they're going back and forth again? They've each had them two times now. Look at verse. Actually, before we get to verse 13, let me say this. As we move on to the rest of the verses that we're going to study tonight, we're going to see that the events of history are going to be lining up to fulfill the vision, as you're about to see in verse 14. In order for the prophecies about the one who will prefigure the Antichrist to come true, Israel must be under the control of the northern kingdom. Who are they under control of right now? South. All right. Do we need to take a breather? I told you, this is a different type of study than we normally do. I'm usually bombing you with scripture. Now I'm bombing you with history. And I know some of you out there are eating this up and you're loving it. Others are going, I'm done. I'm tired. I probably would have been one of those people as well sitting in the class going, okay. I'm sure this is written down somewhere and I can read it later. Stick with me. Hopefully stick with me here. Look at verses 13 through 16. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. Remember Antiochus III, he hadn't, he, he hadn't died. The king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. 
Now, after having been defeated, Antiochus III takes time to amass a larger army to one day attack the south again. In 203 BC, 203 BC, Ptolemy IV and his queen suddenly die mysteriously. We don't know how they died or why they died, but they suddenly die. So the throne of Egypt was then occupied by, you got your paper in front of you, who's in power now? Ptolemy V. Now here's an interesting little tidbit though. Ptolemy V is only six years old at this time. All right. Throne of Egypt was occupied by Ptolemy V, who was only six years old. Now Antiochus III, the great, saw this as his time to attack. Remember, he's just had this major battle years prior against the king of the south. And even though he was more powerful, the king of the south was allowed to win and they took control over Israel. Well, now he's got a larger army and he comes because the king of the south is only six years old and he comes to attack. And with the help of his new ally, Philip of Macedon, he does. Now, the Egyptian situation was also weakened by the fact that there were many people in Egypt and Israel who were tired of the reign of the Ptolemies, and they helped the northern invaders. By the way, go back to look at verses 13 through 16 again. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall arise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people. Who, who's talking right now? The angel is talking to Daniel. And he's talking to Daniel. And so when he says, the violent among your own people, who's he talking about? The nation of Israel, the Jews, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. In other words, there's a vision here that is going to be given about a man, which we're going to study next time we meet together. Not next week, but two weeks from now when we meet together again. And we're going to know him. We've heard his name before as Antiochus Epiphanes. In order to fulfill that vision... They don't even realize that they're helping to fulfill the vision. But people of Egypt and the people of Israel, who are tired of being under the control of the Ptolemies, they help the king of the north in this battle, and they all fight to help, and the north, northern kingdom is going to win. Just like the prophecy said. But you say, Jim, they said, they thought, it says here they shall fa fail. Well, they don't, they don't fail in helping in the victory. They fail in fulfilling the vision. The fulfilling of the vision isn't going to happen until later on. As you're going to see next week, we're going to be taking a look at the end of chapter 11, and we're going to take a look at how Antiochus Epiphanes begins the fulfilling of the vision, but all he is is a pre-picture of the actual fulfillment of the vision. The vision itself, and I'm going to give you a little hint if you want to do a little study, from where we're going to be next week, we're going to be in chapters 21 through the end of chapter 11, there is a break in the prophecy between verses 35 and 36. Verses 21 through 35 are going to be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Verses 36 to the end of the chapter are going to be talking about the Antichrist who is still yet to come on the scene. But again, I hope you understand that by studying this and allowing it to get into your heart, even just a little bit, all of a sudden, many other scriptures are going to start making some sense as it all starts to come together. There are a lot of prophecies that we're going to deal with next week, especially about the Antichrist. And does he have to be a Jew? 
Could he be possibly not Jewish? Well, how could the Jews accept him as their Messiah if he's not a Jew? And we're going to get into all that. And there are scriptures that actually talk about all this stuff. I hope you are able to be with us the next time we get together. So Antiochus III did as he pleased, according to verse 16. And in doing so, he came into where? Look at verse 16. The glorious land. Where's that? That's Israel. It's the land of Israel. He, in doing so, he comes into the beautiful land, and it's now firmly in control of Syria again. And also soon to the one who would be prefigure the Antichrist. So, how many times has Syria had control of Israel now during these years? We're on three. And how many times has Egypt had control? Two. Three to two. Syria, the northern kingdom's winning three to two. But this is all happening during... One kingdom, which is under Greece. The Romans haven't come in yet. They're going to next time we get together. The Romans haven't showed up yet, but they're going to. And you're going to hear a little bit about them tonight before we close. All right. Now look at verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him to the daughter, give him to the, the daughter of women, to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Let me read it to you again since I kind of stumbled over it. He, the one we've been looking at, Antiochus III, shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him to the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. In an effort to gain full control over Egypt now, remember his kingdom's already coming down to the borders of the northern part of Egypt, he wants to have control over all of Egypt as well. Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra to be married to Ptolemy V. Now, again, this isn't the famous Cleopatra. That's a later, later Cleopatra. Just like there's a bunch of Ptolemies, there's a bunch of Cleopatras. But Antiochus III has a daughter named Cleopatra, and he decides he's going to give his daughter to marry Ptolemy. Remember, he's only six when he becomes king. I don't know how many years later this is but he's definitely not very old. Cleopatra is actually becoming his wife so that daddy can call the shots in Egypt through his daughter, Cleopatra. That's what his plan is. Now, we must note also that at this time, Rome is rising in power and showing interest in this young man, Ptolemy V. Antiochus III most likely tried to make an alliance with Egypt by giving his daughter in marriage, but Cleopatra's loyalty was not more to her father than her husband, as he had possibly hoped. This plan backfires on him. He thought she would be pro-daddy, anti-husband. She was pro-husband, anti-daddy. Go back and read verse 17 again now, understanding the history. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. And history, folks, proved that all out. Look at verses 18 and 19. Afterward, he shall return, he shall turn, sorry, and his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence, indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. 
Now, Antiochus III foolishly goes after Greece. Remember, he went after the coastlands. He actually goes after the island of Greece and in the land of Greece. Even though Rome, at this time, Rome's rising in power, Rome tells him not to. And he does it anyway. And he was defeated twice by the Roman general Cornelius Scipio. And this is opening the door to more and more victories of Rome later on. The Greek kingdom is now starting to crumble and the Roman Empire is starting to get stronger. And part of the problem was Antiochus III, his plan to have his daughter help with Egypt ain't working, so he decides, I'm going to go after Greece. Rome's gathering in power, and Rome says, ah, 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 that's up by us, don't mess with it. And he does it anyway. <laughs> and he's defeated twice. He's still in power, but he was defeated twice by this Roman general Scipio. Now Antiochus III then retreats to Syria, and he robs the temple of Jupiter to help his cash flow problem. He's starting to have a little problem with cash flow. And so he robs the temple of Jupiter, and this causes a rebellion and the death of Antiochus III. He comes back, Rome's after him, his deal with Egypt ain't working out, his daughter ain't helping, and so he decides he's going to go rob the temple of Jupiter to help his cash flow problem, and when the people in the area found out about that, all of a sudden, you're messing with our gods, and he was put to death. Go back and read verses 17 and 18 again with me. I'm oh, sorry, 18 and 19 again with me. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands, shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, Syria. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Now our last verse tonight. for tonight. Some of you are sad. Some of you are about to jump up and down. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So who comes after Antiochus III? Seleucus IV. This verse deals with the short term or the short time of the rule of Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV. He wasn't very popular with his subjects because of the heavy taxes he required of his people. Go back and read verse 20. Then shall arise in Antiochus III's place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But when it says within a few days, it's talking about a short period of time, he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. Well, let me explain how that happens. He now is not popular with his subjects because the heavy taxes he required of his people. By the way, remember his dad's cash flow problem? Well, he inherited it. And so he decides that he's going to start taxing the northern kingdom of Syria. And on top of that, who does he also have control of at that time? Israel. Very good, Jeremy. He's still in, he's in the northern kingdom's in control of the, the glorious land. So he sends a guy named, let me make sure I pronounce this correctly here. He sends a, a man named Heliodorus down to Jerusalem to plunder treasure from the Jewish temple. But Seleucus IV would die from poisoning at the hands of Heliodorus, the guy that he sends down to Jerusalem to rob the Jewish temple to help pay for some of the stuff that he wants to pay for. And the next king to arise on the scene after uh, Seleucus IV is who? Antiochus IV. And you see there 
epiphanies. If you've at all studied Bible and history and Bible prophecy, you've heard the name Antiochus Epiphanes. If not, you're going to hear about him next time we gather together because verses 21 through 35 are going to deal with Antiochus Epiphanes. And you need to pay close attention when we do because it's going to be giving us a lot of clues and glimpses to who the Antichrist is going to be and, and what he's going to look like and how he's going to act. And so with all that in mind, some of you are saying, what's he going to do for the last 10 minutes? I'm going to let you go home. Does anybody, has anybody had let sunk in yet how very specific God's prophecy was? Folks, believe what is still to come. It is going to happen just like the Bible says. I love you. Go home early. We'll see you in two weeks.